The NBA tips off the quote-unquote second half of the season tonight. What can we possibly expect as we get through the final two months and into another postseason? UConn gets a taste of losing after Creighton runs them out of the gym. Any concerns with the defending champs? The red-hot New York Rangers are showing they're that team in the East in the entire league. College football has its playoff seating set, but now there's talk about expanding the format in 2026. The Mahomes rule is now a thing, dating back to the Jordan rules of the late 80s, early 90s. The Otani attention meter is out of control. Anthony Rendon said what? And Aaron Judge's big toe as spring training is underway. Gearing up for another hour of unapologetic, fast-paced sports talk. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here to spend a brief moment and share a friendly reminder to please subscribe, rate, review the podcast on whichever platform you listen to on the regular, just so we can increase the visibility of the J Reels podcast to those who aren't familiar with it. Leave plenty of stars, write a favorable review. It will go a long way for the curious listener looking to hop on board to get a dose of entertaining and passionate sports talk. For the visually inclined, please subscribe to my YouTube channel at J Reels as I post daily shorts and weekly vlogs, not only delving into the world of sports, but follow me on my journey to take the podcast and channel to new heights as I provide an in-depth behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for yours truly to produce content on a day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out basis. It goes without saying how much I truly appreciate all of your support. And without further ado, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, inching closer to another month and another podcast as I'll unwrap all of the latest and greatest in sports as this. It's the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And here we go as the NBA will tip off tonight to get ourselves started for the quote-unquote second half. As we all know, a lot of these teams have played well past the 41-game mark. But of course, with the All-Star break, now a thing of the past, and we could set our sights on what's going to happen here Throughout the course of, I'll say, maybe seven weeks, could be eight when you think about it, because we are on the 22nd of February, just a week away from leap year this year, of course, having the 29 days of February, so we have to have that extra day before we get to March. But I would think when the NBA season concludes, which will be around, I guess, the 15th or so, so you could say seven weeks before we say bye-bye to a laborious and rather lengthy regular season, which is still the same 82 games, I understand. But we just want to get to April. We just want to get the road to the NBA Finals, as well as the NHL and the Stanley Cup for that matter. But we're sticking to the hardwood. And what I could look at here, as far as some storylines as we head to the final, 
I guess, 27, 28 games, maybe even a little bit more or less, depending on which team you are. But this is what I'm looking at from a 30,000-foot overview when it comes to the association. The first thing that comes to mind are the Boston Celtics. Arguably, right now, you could even say they are the best team in the sport. Their record is 43-12. and 12. The second-best record in the NBA belongs to the Minnesota Timberwolves. They're currently 39-16. and 16. And the Celtics, for everything that they've done throughout the course of this season, getting out to a big lead, not only in the East, but also separating themselves from the pack as far as a team that is going to be a serious title contender. And why not? When we look at what happened a couple of years ago where they went to a final, granted they held on by the hairs of their chinny-chin-chin beating the Heat in that Game 7 and then losing to the Warriors in 6. Next year, or this past year, where they lost to the Heat in a 7-game Eastern Conference Final, the third time in four years that they met, and they've made it to Conference Finals over the years. Quite frankly, too many that you could count, considering this young nucleus with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown spearheading the attack. And now for them, it's not only to get to April with the best record, which we would think they will. They currently have a six game and five in the loss when it comes to the Eastern Conference with the Cavaliers behind them in second place. But to me, it is championship win. Not championship round, not getting to a finals. It's winning the whole thing or bust because of the progression that they've made over the years. We've seen them go to countless conference finals, Obviously, the NBA final that I mentioned two years ago, losing to the Golden State Warriors, and now it's time for them to seal the deal. But the big question surrounding this organization is, do you trust them? Do you trust them in a big spot? Because we've seen them win in big spots. Yes, Game 7 in Miami, and even though they did have a 2-1 series lead against the Warriors in the NBA final, but they have not been able to, for whatever the reason, Get over that hump, whether it was win a game four where they had a five-point lead with about four minutes to go in game four before the Warriors took over and then pretty much blitzkrieg them to win the series. Or even last year with the tip-in by Derek White in game six, which was miraculous. And then for them to lose a game seven, granted Jason Tatum on the opening offensive drive or possession turned his ankle and that pretty much turned the fortunes of the Celtics from a chance to do something historic be a team that was down 0-3 in a playoff series for them to go up and smoke in their building against the Heat and therefore fall short of making it to an NBA final. And we've seen them get to all these different barometers when it comes to, or thresholds, when it comes to them, whether making it to a conference final, winning a conference final, coming back from an 0-3 deficit, although losing, getting into the finals, having a 2-1 series lead in the finals, but not winning the whole thing. So this is where the trust factor comes in. And I understand this is not going to be answered until we get to April, May, and June. More so you would think May and June because the first round, whomever they play in a 1-8 matchup, unlike last year with the whole situation regarding the Bucks and Heat with Giannis going down early in Game 1 and not coming back to Game 4 and we saw how the Heat won that series and were able to dispose of the Milwaukee Bucks in 5. We can't see that happening again this year, barring something disastrous. But to me, this is going to be a focal point that, yes, not for the remainder of this regular season, but when we get to the spring and really get to zero in on what the Celtics are going to do here throughout the course of that stretch run, 
that is going to be a big time spotlight that's going to be shining on them. But I have to bring this up now because this is a receipt that you're going to have to keep and certainly go back to when we get to that point of the playoff season. But the Celtics should be not necessarily in cruise control, but they should be in good stead here for the remainder of the way. They have a big cushion. And even though I understand it's not going to be a big storyline for them, but I'm forecasting down the road and even throughout the course of this remainder of the regular season. Because if they're going to have this lofty position as being the top seed in the East, and for them to not say they're going to float in and float out of these games, but they're not going to really play for much here down the stretch, especially if the Cavaliers or even the Bucks make a run to put some pressure on the Celtics to keep that number one seed in the East. So you have a lot of interesting variables when it comes to the Celtics as we get through the remainder of this regular season. And right, is it the number one storyline? I only bring them up because they are in the East. And as I go East to West, that's the one thing that you're going to pay attention to on whether or not the Celtics are a team that you could really rely on for them to finally get to Banner 18 to break this drought of what is right now a... 16-year championship-less streak of them not winning a title. So let's just put that there on the front burner as far as the storyline as we get into the second half. Who else is going to come out of the East or at least maybe even threaten the Celtics? We know the Bucks, even for all of their misfortune here over the last few weeks, whether it's getting the coach out, trying to get some sort of camaraderie and chemistry together, Doc Rivers coming in, I felt that that wasn't even the right choice. I get it. He may be the best of a not-so-good lot. But Doc Rivers, especially since he won that aforementioned title with the Celtics back in 2008, he has blown 3-1 leads left and right, even a 3-2 lead last year to the Celtics going back to Philadelphia. And is he going to be the guy to deliver the Bucks back to a NBA final and even a championship the way they won the title three years ago over the Phoenix Suns? I don't think he's that guy. The Cavaliers, they've played great. They've even maybe even played over their heads considering they had a nine-game winning streak, had one ten of 11 heading into this was last week before the All-Star break. And then now you have to wonder whether or not the Cavaliers are going to turn on the Jets to see if they could get some length between them and the team beneath them in the conference, which is currently the Milwaukee Bucks. And for Cleveland with their young core, Can they maybe get to a conference final and who knows, even threaten the Celtics to push them to a seventh game? And as we all know, a seventh game is a toss-up. So the Cavaliers could be a threat here. I don't really see it, although they are playing well and they had a very good year last year and they got disposed in the first round by the Knicks. Could I see that happening again this year? Maybe not as a two seed, but the Cavaliers, you'd have to deem them a threat as of right now. But in the grand scheme of things, I'd have to see more. Now, as far as the Knicks, even the Sixers without Joel Embiid, and I know that's a huge loss. Kyle Lowry, who they got off the scrap heap after Lowry was traded to Charlotte for Terry Rozier, and now he lands back in his hometown of Philadelphia, of course, played college ball at Villanova. Not that he's going to be a guy that's going to add that much more of a plus to their team. Yes, he does bring some championship pedigree from his days in Toronto. He does bring that leadership Maybe he could get some guys to be a little bit more locked in and focused on the big picture and just trying to get through the rest of this regular season. But is he going to have enough of an impact, especially with them beat out, to kind of will this team to the finish line and maybe get themselves 
somewhere between three and five. You want to at least get to three so you can have a home court at least in the first round and maybe go up against Cleveland in the second round if it so happened to fall that way. The Sixers, as we know, they're a big question mark, even with the coach Nick Nurse, who's won a title in Toronto, and obviously there's familiarity with Lowry and Nurse. So we'll have to wait and see. And then the bottom rung, Indiana, I get it that they're a team that could be maybe laying in the weeds, not to say they're going to take that next step, but with Tyrese Halliburton, Pascal Siakam, and Miles Turner, you do have a good young core there that maybe can make some noise in the East, maybe win around past that. Right now, I would say no. And then you also have Miami that's in the seventh slot, which is pretty much where they've been going back to last year. As we all know, they were an eighth seed. They were pretty much on their way out when the Bulls had them on the ropes there late in the second playing game and they were able to prevail and go on a run there before getting to an NBA final to a game five, as we talked about there, beating the Celtics in that crazy Eastern Conference final. But the Heat are pretty much in familiar territory saying that, yeah, we're in the seventh seed, and mind you, Jimmy Butler's not played a lot of games. The Heat have played, what, 55 games, and I believe he's played 37 of them. So this is not even uncharted territory. This is where the Heat probably want to be. A team that is on the outside looking in, let all the attention go to the Celtics, and maybe even the Cavaliers for that matter, the Bucks as we know, Knicks, Sixers, you want to say an upstart Indiana team, great. Miami says, we got them right where we want them. And for them to be currently 7th, and we'll see how this is going to play out the rest of the way, but you know the Heat are going to be a team that's dangerous once they get into the tournament. And you would think they're going to, even if they are 7th, they're going to have a home game. And they actually had the two home games last year. Remember, they lost to Atlanta in the first game, and then, again, with the Bulls pretty much having them almost on life support. Three minutes ago, they were down by three, and they were able to win that game, and of course go on that run to the final as I talked about. And then you can't really expect much out of the Bulls or even the Hawks for that matter. And I get it that Orlando has been a team that started out strong, were looking like a team that could be with all their young players, the Franz Wagners of the world, the Paolo Boncaros, etc. Where maybe that could be a team that could be a threat even though they may not know their way around a playoff scenario or even an Eastern Conference to go up against those big boys. But for Orlando's come really back down to the pack, but you would think that they're going to be part of that scenario there in the playing tournament when it's all said and done. Can they advance? Can they get to the postseason when it begins in earnest after the playing tournament scenario? I don't know. To me, it's a little bit too early to tell. We'd have to wait and see. I would like to think that maybe for them... This would be a boon to make the postseason, to get a taste as an 8 seed, to go up against the Celtics, to see what it's like to navigate their way through a playoff series, whether they get swept five games, six, or dare I even say seven game against the first-seeded Celtics, if it were to end that way. And then below that, you can't even look at the Nets, although they changed their coach, as I talked about Monday, Jock Vaughn, who... I understand you get blown up by 50 against the Celtics and just that alone is worthy of being fired. But because they do not have a big time roster, we know about the previous superstars that were there, the KDs, Kyries, etc. And even with Mikael Bridges and Ben Simmons, that's not going to be enough to get themselves in position to where they can maybe get themselves into a playing tournament 
or have an opportunity to maybe even fight for a playoff spot. So what they are right now, they're two and a half games back, two in the loss behind the Hawks, and the Hawks have been up and down as we know. So even if they were to get in, can they make some noise? I'd say no. But that's what you have there in the East. Out West, how I look at it here is will the cream rise to the top? And right now, that cream is going to be Denver, Phoenix, only because of their recent pedigree. And granted, that's going to go back to them being a finals team. And I understand you don't have Chris Paul there. You don't have DeAndre Ayton, two of the big stars that were there. Cam Johnson, guys like that. But for this conference, which has been Minnesota, OKC, since day one. And understand the Clippers got off to a slow start. Have played very well to the point where they're just a game in the loss behind the T-Wolves for the top seed in the West. And the Clippers, you have to put in there to mix with Denver and Phoenix, continuing to rise to get themselves to a point where they are going to be at the top two or three seeds in the Western Conference. But for Minnesota and OKC, can they be threats? Can they be a team to get to a conference final and dare I even say, as top two seeds, could that be your Western Conference Final? Off the top of my head, I believe they're going to be on TNT this year because they flip-flop between them and ESPN as far as who gets which Conference Final. Last year, the Celtics and Heat were on TNT. So this year, they'll be on ESPN. But TNT, I'm sure, although they'll break out the pom-poms and say, hey, we got two young guns that are going to represent and see whether or not who's going to be that Western Conference opponent in an NBA final against the East. And T-Wolves Thunder is not sexy. A lot of America is going to want to see the defending champ Denver or even the Clippers in a perfect world. They want to see LeBron there, as we all know, or maybe even Steph Curry. And I'll get to both the Lakers and Warriors in a second. But for the West, like I mentioned, Cream rising to the top. Will it be Denver? Will it be the Clippers finally getting to an NBA final for the first time in their franchise's history? Or even the Nuggets going back to repeat. The Suns, can they make another run to a final the way they did three years ago, even though with a different cast of characters? Taking out Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, and plugging in Kevin Durant and Bradley Beal. And for Dallas, Sacramento, I know those are teams that certainly have Good young talent. And obviously in Dallas, you have Kyrie and Luka Doncic that could certainly beat any team and maybe advance. But since they're seventh right now, and even though I can't 100% trust them to get to, let's say, even a conference final, I could see them just being a team that could win a round, maybe shock, let's say, Oklahoma City in the first round. But after that, I can't even tell you. And this is where the Mavericks two years ago, remember, they made it to a conference final against the Warriors there after beating Phoenix in that brutal Game 7 by the Suns that they haven't lived down ever since. And that was two years ago. And this is coming off the heels of them getting blown out in a Game 6 against the Nuggets last year in the same round. I'm not going to look at New Orleans. I get it that they're currently 6th. New Orleans is a team, as we know, very young with... The head coach there, Willie Green, a lot of people love. I know that they've been kind of quiet this year. You haven't heard a lot from Zion Williamson or C.J. McCollum, but can they be a team that 
Could surprise, they could. But when we take a look at that landscape, to me, I would think it's going to be either Clippers, Nuggets, Suns, because Minnesota and OKC, could they get to a conference final? They absolutely can, but I don't know if they're ready to take that next step. And even a conference final for them, it's a huge step. We know OKC, the last time they were there, they had that 3-1 series lead against Golden State before losing. That was Kevin Durant's last year, as you recall. And Minnesota, they haven't made it to a conference final in 20 years. When Kevin Garnett, Latrell Sprewell, and Sam Cassell was on that team. So those would be big accomplishments for both of those organizations right now to get to a conference final, but I don't think they're going to take that next step. To me, it's going to be either the Clippers, Nuggets, Suns, and if I had to bet right now, I'd probably say the Nuggets, only because they've been there, done that, and I get it, the Suns could be dangerous, but I'd have to say Denver at this present moment. Although the Clippers, I'm sure they could give them a run for their money as well. Now, provided everybody's healthy and ready to go, and you have a lot of veterans on that team with Kawhi Leonard, Russell Westbrook, and Paul George, but again, they're the Clippers for a reason. But who knows? Maybe it's their time to finally get to a final considering everything that transpired between Leonard's health and him not coming back and him having a steady year this year and consistency with that team after a slow start. Who knows? Maybe it is their year. And then you have the Lakers and Warriors where they're currently 9th and 10th in the West and we would think that they're going to be fine to at least make it into the playing tournament. But here's going to be the issue when we look at it. If the season ended today, Do you know that they would face one another in that opening round playing tournament? Which would bode terribly for the NBA because that means you're either going to have LeBron out, Anthony Davis out, or Curry out. And they need to be separated there whether it's the Lakers at 8 and the Warriors at 9 or they don't even want them at 7 and 8. Because although it would be very appealing, it would be a sexy game, but one of those guys is going to be done. And the last thing that the NBA wants is to have both of those guys out. Or both of those teams, I should say. And right now, those are two teams that, as I look at it, and I understand the Lakers could squash that based on their track record, and especially last year, making it into the playing tournament and getting to a conference final. But with the way that it's shaking down right now, can you expect another deep run despite the fact that LeBron and AD have been relatively healthy this year and the Warriors have been just in disarray throughout the whole year with the whole Draymond issue and then the tragic passing of their assistant coach and them trying to piecemeal it together, even the rumors about them trying to obtain LeBron right before the trade deadline a couple of weeks ago. And who knows? This is a team that, it's to me, is gasping for air, trying to do anything and everything to have some staying power, despite the fact that they do have the pedigree and the track record and winning a title two years ago. But is that a team that's going to have any length in this postseason? Yeah, maybe they'll get in and win a round, but anything after that? Just because of the Warriors, that they're automatically going to be in a conference final or NBA final? Uh Uh-uh. And the same goes for the Lakers, despite the fact of what they did last year. So... Tons of questions abound. I know we still have plenty of time between now and I guess April 15th before we even get to the playing tournament. But these are some of the things to look at here as we get ready to tip off this second half tonight. And let me look at the schedule here to see what we got anything juicy. I know the Saturday night schedule 
or the showcase game ABC has the Celtics at the Knicks and the Knicks who are coming into this second half in a four game losing streak and Julius Randle though he's progressing and he may have to hold off on surgery but who knows what his status is going to be as we continue to march on tonight you have a bunch of games there Knicks are in Philly Phoenix at Dallas So your TNT games, that's the first one. Then you have the Lakers playing Golden State. I believe LeBron is sitting out tonight. So that's going to be a, I don't want to say detriment. I want to go as far as saying that. But for the NBA fan, you're going to want to see that matchup. And here we are just talking about how the Lakers and Warriors are pretty much battling battling it out for that final playoff spot as of right this second. And here it is. LeBron's not even going to play tonight. And I'll take a look as to why. But then you have Cleveland and Philadelphia tomorrow, Milwaukee, Minnesota, Boston and New York, as I mentioned. And then you have a doubleheader there on Sunday where Milwaukee will go to Philadelphia. The Lakers will play the Suns in Phoenix. Denver at Golden State, ESPN 7 o'clock. You had a double dip there with Sacramento and the Clippers. So you have a bunch of games to chew on here for the Hoops fan to whet your appetite after a week off there with the All-Star break. So... That's what you have there. And as far as LeBron with his issue as to why he's not playing tonight. And I see that he has had a barking left ankle, which I believe he didn't even play a lot of the second half in the All-Star game there the other night. So even with the game being played on Sunday and now what has been four days removed from the All-Star game, he's still going to sit out and not play just to get additional treatment. I get it. He's 39 years of age. It's not as if he's 29 or even 34 for that matter. And with the Lakers, it's the long run. That puts a damper on the game tonight, TNT, if you're going to watch at home. So that's what you have there with the NBA, the latest and greatest there. Let me tune or turn my attention to the college basketball where you had UConn lose to Creighton the other night and got blown out there on the road. And this is after them blowing out Marquette there a few days ago. But for UConn, I'm not going to look at this as a, ooh, eyebrow raising, what's going to happen here as far as any concerns go. All right, they may drop to two or probably not go down as far as three, I would think, in the rankings. But at the end of the day, that's not going to be the big thing that you're going to question. They can lose a game on the road. We know Creighton, they're ranked 15th in the nation, so it's not as if they lost to a bad team in the process. But for UConn, I would still think they're, Going to have a one seed when it's all said and done, when the tournament begins, and they're going to defend their title. They're going to be a heavy favorite. So you just look at this as a hiccup. Granted that they got blown out, but any team that's going to drain threes on them and have that type of game, you just tip your hat and keep it moving. I mean, that's all there is to it. And as far as the Huskies and any type of worry between now and the Remainder of the year, they still have to play Marquette again. I believe that final Saturday or Sunday before we get to the conference tournaments. But for UConn, I think they're going to be fine. I'm not going to look at this as an alarming loss or anything that I would really say, ooh, I don't know, maybe something's not right there. Come on. If you blow out Marquette just a few days ago and you lose on the road to Creighton, to me, that's nothing to go crazy about. So... You have that going on there as far as the unpredictability and the topsy-turvy men's basketball as we know. 
And then you had Kentucky lose to LSU where the fans stormed the court after that tip in there. And we understand this is not a vintage Kentucky team. Although they're currently ranked in the top 25. I believe they're, what, 17th? And then you had Angel Reese run onto the court there who was in the crowd and part of the bum rush as LSU pulled off the upset there over the Wildcats. But for... College basketball overall, I mean, this is what's going to happen here throughout the remainder of this regular season. This isn't going to be a scenario where you're going to have so many top-heavy teams, or yes, you know who are going to be the favorites or who are going to be the one seeds when it's all said and done. But once you get into the dance, it is going to be literally a coin flip, especially after you get past that first round. And of course, we've seen one seeds drop, especially Purdue here of recent note as a one seed losing to a 16 seed. But again, this is how college basketball has been here over the last half decade or so. This isn't college basketball when I grew up or even going back to the 90s or even early 2000s for that matter where we knew that you may have a Cinderella or two a la George Mason 2006 or even VCU, what was it, 2012? Teams like that that are going to shock everybody. Butler, if you want to say, going back to 2010. Teams like that that are just going to really shape the college basketball universe and say, whoa, this is an ultimate Cinderella. And yes, you could look back to last year with the San Diego States of the world, the FAUs, the Miamis, of course. But this is how college basketball is going to be. You may have not just one team, but you may have two or even three teams make it to a Final Four that you did not expect. And I can't stress it anymore, and I don't want to sound like a broken record from now until we get to... Selection Sunday and the tournament, but are you going to be surprised that more top teams are going to lose here, whether Houston's going to lose or Arizona or a lot of these other teams that are going to have these losses and you're going to say to yourself, oh my God, what's going to happen here come March Madness? We've seen this here over the last couple of years. So I can't expect it to change here on a dime to know that the sports world is, or at least the college basketball world, that there's going to be some sense of normalcy And I get it, two years ago, you did see that with all the Blue Bloods, where you had Villanova, Kansas, North Carolina, Duke in your Final Four. And that's okay, and that's fine. And that is what we expect. But last year, what we saw throughout the tournament and what we're seeing throughout the regular season, I think that that's what's going to take place here to conclude once we get to the second Sunday or third Sunday in March, when we have the Final 68 mapped out, and then once we get into the tournament, it's literally a crapshoot. So to me, this is what college basketball is going to be from now until we get to the first Monday in April. Or maybe the second Monday, depending on when it falls. It'll actually be the second Monday because Monday, April 1st, is the day after Easter. So the championship game, Final Four, will be the 6th and the 8th, respectively. And I mixed that up. I know Final Four first and championship, but you get my drift. But let's see, what else we have in college basketball? No, I believe that pretty much covers it when we discuss what's happening on the hardwood. Now, let me pivot as I lace up my skates to go through the NHL. And I'll get to a few other things later on with the NFL, even college football, as they have their format set up. And now they're even talking about 14 games. And they just came out yesterday with the whole 12-team situation. So pause there for a second as I get to the NHL. The one team that I'm going to look at here, and I understand it's what? February 22nd. It is not March 22nd, and for sure, it is not the opening 
night of the Stanley Cup playoffs. But as we've talked about time after time, and this is what brings up good fodder for sports talk or a podcast like this, but the Rangers have now won eight in a row after beating the Islanders there on Sunday, which I talked about on Monday's podcast, and then they beat the Dallas Stars who came to town there on Tuesday. For the Rangers to now have an eight-game winning streak tied for the most wins in the sport with Vancouver, who has been on a great run here and dominating the West, as well as the Florida Panthers, who are also forging a winning streak of their own as they've won six in a row. But for the Rangers to now have a six-point lead over the Carolina Hurricanes, again, 37 wins, most in the conference tied with the Florida Panthers, and even though the Bruins do have 79 points, the most points in the East, and I believe Vancouver, they have 80, so they have the top spot right now if you're looking at the President's Trophy standings so to speak, but the Rangers, and we talked about them going back two years ago as a team that were cup-worthy, had the roster, we know what happened there in the Lightning Series after them beating the Carolina Hurricanes where it was a home-home series, and even though the Hurricanes had the home ice advantage, but when it got to a Game 7, they shut out the Hurricanes and went on to face the two-time defending cup Tampa Bay Lightning, and even though the Rangers had a 2-0 series lead and the Rangers had a 2-1 lead, Going into the third period in game four where the Lightning were down 2-1 and then the Lightning won that game and then they came to Madison Square Garden won a game six on the road or excuse me, game five before winning game six in their building which certainly deflated all the Ranger fans thinking that they were going to be the team to beat the Tampa Bay Lightning en route to a third straight Stanley Cup and that wasn't the case. And then last year... Even with them bringing in big pieces at the trade deadline, whether your name is Patrick Kane, whether your name is Vladimir Tarasenko, and it looked like they were going to be primed for a long, deep Stanley Cup run, get out to that 2-0 series lead against the Devils when they beat them 5-1 in each of the first two games, and then the Devils won the next three games in between, and then they had the Rangers win a game six before losing a game seven out in New Jersey. And now, to me, it's all set up for them. They are looking to see maybe they could fight for a one seed. They have all the pieces in place. I know Igor Shosturkin puzzles me just a little bit. And this even goes back two years ago when they had that run to an Eastern Conference final. Shosturkin was a little streaky, is a guy that could be one of the best in the business, as we know, but is also a guy that you have to wonder between his ears. Maybe not so what's in his chest, but between his ears. If he gives up a soft goal... I saw him there the other night against the Islanders. He gave up a couple of bad goals. And I'm not going to just base it on one game, but I followed him throughout the course of this year. And his stats aren't jumping off the page. That's not to say he's the worst goaltender or he doesn't belong in the NHL. Of course, I'm not going to go as far as that. But Sturgeon is a guy that's going to carry this team home to a Stanley Cup final. And I get it. He has Jonathan Quick over his shoulder. Maybe that's also a little bit of a factor when it comes to him maybe feeling the pressure of a guy that's won two Stanley Cups, a guy that knows his way around winning. And in fact, one of those Stanley Cups, he beat the Rangers back in 2014. But when you look at his overall stats, his goal against is 2.79. Definitely not amongst the tops in the sport. Save percentage at 904. Pretty good, but not, again, amongst the upper echelon of goaltenders in the National Hockey League. Schultz Sturkin, I get it. He could be a guy that could carry you to a cup. Bar none, 
Certainly has the talent, the ability, etc. But one more time, between his ears, what's going on in there when it comes to having to stop that big shot or knowing that he needs to take his team home if they're either down 3-2 or it's 3-3 or you need that game for your life. Shesterkin hasn't proved that. And I understand that's more for April, May, and June. But that's something you have to keep in mind. And again, let's keep that receipt for the spring. Because Shesterkin has not delivered the goods here in his short tenure as goaltender for the Rangers. When I say short, all right, three, four years. I understand he was battling it out with Alexander Georgiev at one point before he got shipped to Colorado. But now this is his team. And even with Quick over his shoulder, he still has to find a way to get his team to the promised land. And the Rangers, as we know, they are stout. They have one of the top players in the sport, and Artemi Panarin. I always butcher his name for whatever the reason. Artemi Panarin, one more time. And Chris Kreider, who is a goal-scoring machine. I believe he's one away. If he hasn't gotten it yet, I know he got the 299 against the Islanders, one away from 300 for his career. Mika Sabanajad, as we all know, he's a guy you always have to watch out on the ice. Vincent Trocek has been a very good player from Carolina as they got him in free agency. We know about Adam Fox anchoring that D. Alexis Lafreniere, which I get on his case for quite a bit, but he's a steady player. But when you're a number one overall and coming out of junior with all that promise and hope, that's a guy that should be a little bit better than what he is. But thankfully, he doesn't have to carry this team. This Ranger squad is certainly going to be one of the favorites to come out. And again, I understand it's late February and it's not the start of the Stanley Cup playoffs, but the Rangers are on a roll. And yes, I know there's a faction in South Florida could say, hey, we went to a final last year and here we are sneaking up on the Bruins and are within striking distance of being the top seed in the East too. Give it up for them. Sam Reinhart leading the attack there for the Panthers. 39 goals has had a phenomenal year. And we know about Matthew Kachuk. We know about Alexander Barkov. We know about that team. And even though their goaltending has always been suspect, I got to lay low there. When it comes to that, because I know I've gotten on Sergei Bobrovsky in the past, but he's had a great run. And there's no way that I can even look at him to say, oh, well, I got to worry about him in a big spot. You can certainly question it, of course, but based on what he did recently, okay, you got to lay low and back off on him. But the Rangers, to me, I'm not going to say they're the team to beat. I'm not even going to say that they're going to come out of the East. But they are a team based on how they played recently. And I understand got to give Florida their credit and their due as well. But we also have to certainly pay attention to what has taken place with the Rangers over the last couple of years. How they've been close two years ago and even last year with all the promise and them trying to build this team for them to get to a Stanley Cup final. And now it looks like they're certainly peaking Maybe not at the right time, but peaking to the point where, yes, we are a threat and we belong as one of those teams that could not only get to, but also hoist the Stanley Cup final when it's all said and done. Or Stanley Cup trophy. Get to a final. Win a final. You know what I'm coming from. And then as far as what else is happening throughout the sport, Austin Matthews is on a tear. Two more goals last night as the Maple Leafs win in Arizona. And of course, he's from Arizona, so it was a homecoming for Matthews. He's on pace to score 75 goals this year, which 
Of course, it's not a record. We know Wayne Gretzky owns that, and there have been plenty of other players that have even hit 80 goals, a la Mario Lemieux, Brett Hull, etc. But for Matthews, who's having a big-time year, and right now could be your front-runner to win the MVP. I get it. You could say Nathan McKinnon and a couple of other guys, even Connor McDavid, for that matter, as I talked about there. Maybe not on Monday's podcast, but the week before. But you have a scenario where the Maple Leafs are riding high with their big-time sniper there. And they are currently third place in the Atlantic. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on his goal scoring streak and what he's been able to do here over the last X amount of games and pretty much the whole season. And speaking of X amount of games and goal scoring, Alexander Ovechkin scored two the other night against the Devils, who now has 838 career goals. He's been on a stretch where he's had eight goals in his last eight games after going through a bit of a drought for him. And with Ovechkin, I know their team... Right now is on the bubble as they're several points behind the wild card spot in the East. And we can't expect the Capitals to make a run here. I understand that Ovechkin, even at what is he, 37 years of age, he's still scoring goals. He's still being effective. And what is he now? If I do my math correctly, 56 goals away from Gretzky. You would think for him to at least reach to Gretzky next year, I would think he has to get to at least... 850. So that's what? 12 more goals? Do I have that correctly? I think he could get to that. Maybe even 855 to be safe because then all he'll need is 39 goals. He'll need a 40-goal season next year in order for him to surpass Wayne Gretzky, which is almost unfathomable when you think about it. And for him to get to 900, I mean, he would just be six goals once he ties Gretzky. To get to 900, we understand that that's going to be an achievement unlike any other. The goal-scoring record in the NHL is like the home-run record in baseball. So, I get it with not a lot of fanfare, especially in North America or really in the United States. North America, you got to include Canada. And as we all know, that's going to be a record that will be praised forever. Here in the States, unless you're a diehard sports fan or a big-time hockey fan, you can certainly appreciate the average sports fan and maybe like, huh, who, what? But for what that's worth, Ovechkin continues to carry on and do what he's been doing here throughout the course of his illustrious career. And as far as the rest of the sport, we talked about the East out West. Dallas still has a two-point lead on Colorado, even though they've hit a bit of a bad stretch here, losing three in a row. And I mentioned the game against the Rangers there the other night. Colorado and Winnipeg, they're separated by one point. Winnipeg, three points behind Dallas. And as I mentioned, the Avalanche, two points behind the Stars. Other than that, in that division... Yeah, the Blues Predators Wild, which won a wild game, speaking of wild against Vancouver the other day, 10-7 where they scored seven goals and five in a five-minute stretch there against the Canucks on President's Day. But the Wild, they're another team that's on the bubble and really on the outside looking in. As far as the Pacific, we know about Vancouver and what they've done. Vegas, Edmonton, they're going to fight that out for second place for the most part. And even LA, the Kings, two points behind Edmonton there. And like I mentioned, once we get to the 60-game point of the NHL season, I'll go through the wild card standings to see where everybody stacks up, where everybody's going to see if they can jockey for a position to get themselves in the mix there for a wild card or maybe even for a top seed. As we know, with Vancouver battling it out in the West with Dallas, just four points behind them, and we talked about what's happening there in the East. All right, now let me turn my attention as I lace up my cleats and even put on a helmet and shoulder pads to go through some football news. I'll start off with the college football 
And what you have here is a playoff that's been finalized there where you're going to have the 12-team playoff, as we know, coming into this college football year starting in late August into September. And for the conferences that will be the winners when it's all said and done, whoever wins their conferences of the Big Five, I understand you have the Pac-2, but for the winners who will get the top five spots and then the other seven, which will be at large, and I understand it's a little bit tricky because... You're going to have a scenario where you may have a team, and I'm just going to throw Notre Dame in the mix. Let's say they go undefeated. Now, remember, they're an independent, so they do not have a conference. So even if, let's say, if they are 13-0 when it's all said and done to go up against, let's say, the Georgias of the world, Florida State, etc., they're going to end up, at best, being a five. And for them to not be a part of the top four and for them to try to battle it out with the other top teams in the sport I get it it's only Notre Dame it's not as if you have a bunch of independents out there but they're going to be on the outside looking in based on them not being affiliated with any of these conferences so I understand that Notre Dame it's not the Notre Dame of old it's not a team that although they may be flirting with a perfect record depending on what the schedule is and I don't have it in front of me but you still have to take into consideration that if you're a fighting Irish fan to my guy John Irving that you can look at it and say hey that's not fair we belong with the top teams in the sport well since you're an independent it's not going to happen but for college football to now have this 12 team playoff and to have the 7 at large to go again with the top 4 whether it's the ACC, SEC, Big Ten, Big 12, and we understand the Pac-2. I know Oregon State, Washington State, they were the final uh, unanimous decision to get this positioning for all the conferences to have this format where it's going to be the top five, then the seven at-large bids. And let's see how this is going to play out because remember, unlike last year where you had teams that probably should have been in the top four Florida State being undefeated but because they didn't have their quarterback you could see why the committee did not pick them and chose Alabama instead especially them over Texas where Texas beat Alabama now you don't have to worry about that this coming year so with that being said now I get to read that they want to expand this format in 2026 from 12 to 14 can we let the ink dry on this one first before we can even think about a 14-team playoff? I mean, maybe let's bring it up in 2026 to maybe set it up for 2028. Let's see how 2024 goes first before we can even think about expanding the playoff. And as it is, with the way the schedule is going to be, you're going to have the first set of games on December 20th. And we understand that's bowl season and everybody's going to pay attention to the lesser bowl that's out there, but everybody's going to be geeked up and raring to go come December 20th where you're going to have those first set of games And then a week later, you're going to have it spread out for the quarterfinals where I believe it's going to start December 28th and it's going to lead into New Year's Day. And then the following week, you're going to have the semifinal game. And then after that, you're going to have the championship game. So from December 20th till about, I believe, January 20th, so a month that's going to be the time frame for these games to be played. So you're going to have that opening round, then the quarterfinal, semifinal, championship game. December 20th through January 20th. 
And for the football fan, pro and college, that's going to be revved up, raring to go, and there's going to be girlfriends and wives throughout the nation that are just going to be sick, and who knows, you're going to have a lot of breakups, divorces, etc., because you're going to have wall-to-wall football where generally in the past you worry about the semifinal game and then the championship game as well as all the NFL playoff games and the Super Bowl, but now you're going to have a situation where you're going to have December 20th, you're going to have to start off the college football playoff, followed by December 28th, then you're going to have New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, a week after that the semifinal, and a week after that the championship game. Good luck to all the relationships out there when we get to the Christmas season because boy, it is going to be nothing but excitement, how this playoff is going to shape up, unfold, NFL season, I mean, you name it. It is just going to be one for the ages here when we get to the latter part of this calendar year and get ready for this first ever college football playoff. But can we pipe down on the 14 games, please? Let's get through at least the first season before we can even think about expanding it to 14 teams. Please. And then as far as the NFL goes, I know you had Antonio Pierce, who is now the official coach of the Los Angeles Raiders, and how he came out and said that the... Chiefs were able to be dethroned. I don't want to say dethroned is too strong. They were able to be beaten by a Raider team that through the Mahomes rule that was stated in a podcast by Pierce to Max Crosby, his defensive lineman on his own team, how they were able to throw everything at him, try to not say play dirty, but when they rushed him or pressured him, hit him, they tried to throw maybe an extra elbow maybe a knee, a push, etc., just to try to throw him off base, off kilter, and had deemed it the Mahomes rule as the last team to beat the Chiefs as they won the final regular season game, and then, as we all know, blitz through the pro season and win back-to-back Lombardi trophies. It was just one game. I get it that Antonio Pierce wants to be the guy to say, well, I was the coach to beat the Chiefs last on their route to a Super Bowl championship. But I think it's a little bit too premature to call this the Mahomes rule. Let me see two, three games. Let me see them go through next regular season and maybe, let's say, if they split those two games and the one loss that the Raiders had against the Chiefs was a 24-20 loss where Mahomes was in disarray made erratic throws, but was able to corral himself and maybe orchestrate a game-winning drive to win a game. All right, fine, I would give you that. But after one game to all of a sudden have this be the Mahomes rules, going back to the book that was written by, I believe it was Sam Smith, the writer out of Chicago. I believe he was with the Chicago Tribune where they had the Jordan rules for the Bad Boys Pistons teams back in the 80s, early 90s to try to defend Michael Jordan as best as possible. And actually did a very good job in doing so. Although basketball played at that time, there was a lot of banging, a lot of intimidation, a lot of bodies on the floor. And I understand that's Antonio Pierce's theory to try to upset and try to do what it takes to get in the head of a one Patrick Mahomes and maybe even to permeate that throughout the offense. But let's face it, I don't think anything could fluster or really frustrate Mahomes to the point where he's going to have that type of game where he's going to go 14 for 34, 140 yards, and throw three interceptions in the process. Mahomes, yeah, he could have bad games. And yes, we know he 
can be superhuman, but we all understand he bleeds the same way we do. But Mahomes, as we know, he is this cool, calm, collected, but also has that fire, passion that burns in his gut that whatever's thrown his way, he's going to find a way to get out of it. And even though Pierce could come out and say, hey, I got the antidote, I got the formula to beat Patrick Mahomes, all right, you did do that on that Christmas Day game, but one game. I can't just automatically think that after one game, oh, he certainly has the script or the blueprint to beat Patrick Mahomes on a game-in, game-out basis. To me, that is not the case. And that's one thing I'll look at the schedule when it comes out after the draft in May, when those two teams will play. And wouldn't it be fitting that the opening game of the NFL season, which we all know is going to be that Thursday in Kansas City, watch the schedule maker gods play its tricks on the LA Raiders or Las Vegas Raiders, I'm thinking LA, LV, and have opening night Raiders and Chiefs. And you don't think that the schedule makers, I'm sure that they will probably think long and hard to put the Raiders there front and center on national TV to open up the NFL season in 2024. Keep that receipt while we wait for the schedule to come out there in the middle of the spring. And then you also have Matthew Slater retire 18 years as a member of the New England Patriots, the special teams expert, the guy that was the glue to that unit and won three Super Bowls, the son of Hall of Fame legend Jackie Slater, the offensive lineman from the Rams, and he calls it a career, and what a career indeed. So kudos to him and what he was able to do throughout as being that special teams player, and who knows, maybe the Hall of Fame will come calling. I get it's very rare for a guy with that caliber, and even though we did see it just this past couple of weeks with Devin Hester making it in as more so a kick and punt return specialist, but who knows, maybe Slater will have his day and his bust in Canton when it's all said and done. And if that would be the case, who am I to say? We understand it's for the creme de la creme, the chosen few, but considering 18 years to have that one position, maybe he is worthy of a Hall of Fame bid. All right, let me get to a couple other quickies before I bid adieu. And I think the last one is baseball because I've touched on the NBA, touched on college basketball, college football, the NHL. Baseball will wrap us up here. And with the spring training in full swing, do I really need to hear about Shohei Otani in batting practice hitting a home run? Can we pump the brakes on that? I understand he's going to garner a ton of attention, the contract, his two-way status, although he's not going to pitch this year as we know. But really, do I have to have the news universe put out a ticker or a report that, hey, Shohei hit a home run in batting practice upon his first foray into the batter's box in spring training? Seriously? That's why I had a long pause there. I mean, this is just reaching for a story which is really a non-story. If you want to get to some stories, I got some for you. Anthony Rendon, seriously, he's another one with the quote-unquote seriously. For him to come out and say that baseball is not a priority, and even though he scoffed at the media, said, well, hey, isn't baseball your job? And he goes, or isn't baseball important to you? He goes, yeah, it's my job, but huh, it's not my priority. I'm, I'm here, am I? 
Anthony Rendon, I get it. You're a World Series winner. You're a guy who, when healthy, and that is not an underline, that is flashing neon lights. When healthy, you are a top flight third baseman. Very good defensively. We know he's got a good stick. No doubt. But this is a guy that's averaged 58 games. And I understand 2020, his first year there, that was the COVID year. But 58 games, I believe is the most he's played, or I believe this is what he's averaged. I got to double check that. Throughout the course of his Angel career, first of all, can you stay healthy? That's number one. And number two, we understand that there's bigger things than what goes on in your workplace. Yes, there is family. There is your faith. Understood. God forbid there's any emergency with your family. That comes before anything. But for him to just almost poo-poo it, like, yeah, it's not that important. Yeah, I do. I'm here, am I? This is my job. I showed up, so on and so forth. Yes, because you're contractually obligated to be there. And you're getting paid $250 million in the process. So I don't want to hear that it's not important, but it is my job and I take my craft seriously when you can't stay healthy, first and foremost. And I understand there are times where you can't help injuries, whether it's the broken wrist that he's had or other maladies that have really hurt him here, no pun intended, over the last four years. But here's a guy that actually attacked a fan in Oakland allegedly, even though it was through a fence or it was spring training, whatever it was. And yes, he could be cantankerous to be quite honest with you. A guy that I'm sure doesn't want to deal with the fanfare, doesn't want to deal with the circumstance of the media or just him not playing, etc. And maybe he is frustrated. I'm sure deep down he is. But for him to just kind of make baseball not be the priority, listen, you better count your blessings, my G, because... You've been getting paid royally handsome. And yes, I understand you've been hurt. But for you to just kind of thumb your nose at, uh, yeah, this is a job, but that's it. That job pays you well. And I'm sure that you could be breaking rocks on the side of a highway, which, not to knock that job by any stretch, but having to deal with rehab and the rigors of a baseball season and get paid the way you do, I'm sure if you haven't counted your lucky blessings, my guy, I hope you start to do so today. Because how you come across by making that comment is just selfish and just downright inexcusable. He almost sounds ungrateful. Which, uh Anyway, let me move on. The toe of Aaron Judge. You got to wonder whether or not this is going to be an issue here this year. And he even stated that he's got to manage it throughout the course of this year. And it's a situation where he's going to be playing center field and that was a freak accident. Him banging into the bottom part of the wall in Dodger Stadium last year, which was concrete and not padded. And him playing center field this year, he doesn't have to worry about that, especially at Yankee Stadium, at least for 81 games. But he says that's one thing he's going to have to manage throughout the course of the year. Now, he didn't say it's not 100% or he didn't say that, uh uh-oh, this could pop up at any time. But for him to say that, that's a red flag. And we understand he's a big guy. 6'8", what is he, 260? Although he's fleet of foot and very athletic, but all it takes, whether it's in the turf in Toronto, up north, or even in Tampa, or who knows, on one of those cold mornings or afternoons at Yankee Stadium in April where it's 50 degrees and rain, and he's in the outfield and he takes one bad step or a slip or whatever... 
Ugh, I'd be holding my collective breath if I was a Yankee fan with all of my Yankee fan friends, which obviously you know I'm not, to wonder whether or not he's going to last here throughout the course of the season. Because without Aaron Judge, as you saw there last year, woo, that does not bode well for the Bombers. And speaking of the Bombers, Glaber Torres going into a walk year, how he said that he wants to be a Yankee for life, but he's unsure knowing that just recently between... Aaron Hicks being jettisoned and Luis Severino. To me, Severino, that was more of an injury history with him as to why the Yankees didn't resign him. And Hicks, his plays was falling off the map. So unless Gleyber Torres is just going to boot balls left and right and bat 210 and have no power numbers to speak of, then he may be the next guy that's out in the rail when it's all said and done. And check back to those receipts. The Yankees should have traded Gleyber Torres two years ago. Similar to Gary Sanchez when he was going through his funk two years prior to that. So for Torres, is he going to have a big year? I don't know. He came out like a lion his first two years where he was a borderline MVP candidate. And since then, he's been a lamb. He has not lived up to the early expectations, him coming from Chicago in that Aroldis Chapman deal to the point where he was going to be one of your foundation guys. A guy that you could bank on that was going to be on your team for years to come. Now, if he has a relatively good year, like he had last year, what do you have, 26, 63, batted 275? To me, uh, I would just say, Glaber, thanks, but no thanks. I wouldn't resign him because you're, you're going to end up resigning him for a deal that's going to be similar to maybe DJ LeMayhew, six for 90. And who knows, he's probably going to want more. And I get it that he's young, he's talented, etc. But I wouldn't resign him. Now, watch him have one of those killer years. He's 38 and 98, batting 290, 295. Then Brian Cashman is certainly going to be in a pickle whether or not to resign him. But anything less than that, he'd walk in my eyes. He's not a great defensive second baseman. Very lackadaisical. Robinson Cano-esque in that regard. And yes, he does have power numbers. Yes, he is a guy that is a threat in a lineup, but... He is very hot and cold, and he's been more cold than hot. So that's my feeling on Torres. And I'm going to end it on this note. Well, let me say this real quick. Eric Hosmer retired, the former Royal, then went to San Diego, to Boston, won a championship there in 2015 against the Mets, which I'll get to in one second. So Hosmer retires, wants to get into a, I believe, a digital media company, maybe expand, work with other players to... Unite whether it's just baseball players or athletes, I don't know. But kudos to him. Congrats on a great career. First baseman, won, I believe, four or five gold gloves. And speaking of the Mets, let's round it off with this. Kodai Senga, the runner-up to the Rookie of the Year last year to Corbin Carroll in the National League. It's already been reported. And pitchers and catchers, what was that? A week ago today, or maybe eight days ago, came into camp? And he already has arm fatigue. This is a guy that last year had to pitch on six days rest. Not the normal five days or four days. So every six day, he was going to tow the rubber. 12-7, and 298 ERA, struck out a lot of guys. Didn't walk a lot of guys too, but had a very good year. And this is a guy that we're going to bank on to be our ace coming into the year. And here it is. Not even an exhibition game has begun. And he has arm fatigue. All I'm going to say is this. To my fellow Met fans out there and to 
everybody's probably laughing at this right now, me being the long-suffering, die-hard Met fan that I am, you can't make it up. And if by any means, if this is a precursor for things to come, wake me up in 2025. That's all I have to say. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by, for spending and carving out your precious time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review, throw me, far, th- throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it. It will go a long way into increasing the visibility, as I mentioned at the very top. Also, if you want to check out any of my daily shorts, vlogs, Go to my YouTube channel at J Reels as I post daily. I got a vlog on deck, which I hope to post tomorrow morning. So you definitely want to peep that. Also, any questions, comments, suggestions, you could do so at the following. Whether it is on my YouTube channel at J Reels or Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels podcast, Twitter, X J Reels one, just the number, the old fashioned way, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. So please send me anything. Like I mentioned, suggestion, question, comment, whatever, even a critique, praise, whatever you want to do. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. Full-time content creator in full effect. So this is what I've been doing here as I roll up my sleeves to get this podcast to the next level. I will continue to bring the passion, fire, fury, energy with my thoughts, opinions, critiques, praise, analysis, feelings on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>